Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing potential challenges and risks from China in 2024 and beyond, as well as what U.S. priorities should be with respect to China. How do Republicans view China, and how does that contrast with the Biden administration's approach? Joining us today is Mr. Elbridge Colby, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development at the Department of Defense during the Trump administration. Mr. Colby served as the Department of Defense's co-lead for the development of the department's premier strategic planning guidance, the National Defense Strategy. Colby's career spans government service and other influential positions, including as the principal and co-founder of the Marathon Initiative, and as former director of the defense program and senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Recognized for his exceptional service, Colby has received awards from the Office of the Secretary of Defense and the Department of State. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the International Institute of Strategic Studies. Thank you for joining us today, Bridge. Great to be with you, Bonnie. So, Bridge, as you know, 2024 is a pretty important year to focus on China, not only because what's happening within domestically within China, but also the Taiwan presidential elections, as well as looking at where the United States stands vis-a-vis China as we're entering a U.S. presidential election year. When you look at China, particularly this year and beyond, what are you most worried about and what should U.S. priorities vis-a-vis China be? Well, I'm most worried about the potential for a conflict with China because I think that China has, you know, a lot of the discussion is about why Xi Jinping himself might or might not think this thing or, you know, their sort of irredentist claims to Taiwan. But I actually think based on what we're seeing, China may have rational structural incentives to risk conflict because they appear to believe that we are seeking to contain their future economic growth, or as Xi Jinping himself and other Chinese leaders have put it, strangle them, according to Ling Ling Wei. And they are preparing in every material way for such a scenario on whatever time. You know, I don't think, I mean, answering your questions last year, I don't personally have a reason to think that Xi Jinping has actually made a decision yet, but the Chinese are building a conventional military to attack and take over Taiwan and fight the United States and Japan as part of that. Moreover, they're building a conventional military that clearly, I think, assumes that Taiwan has been subsumed at some point in the relatively kind of medium term, their long-term force development, which is very telling in that basing architecture and so forth. They're building up a nuclear force. Uh, they're in nuclear breakout, effectively, that the only real value of that, I mean, I don't take very seriously the argument that China's doing this in reaction to our halting nuclear recapitalization program. It's just kind of facially absurd, frankly. They're building a, a huge nuclear, you know, building up their nuclear forces very significantly. And I think the, the only serious value of that is if you thought you would face a war with the United States for various reasons. They are, they, they continue, I mean, as of the beginning of 2024, despite the economic headwinds, Xi Jinping, and this, you know, I think the Communist Party work meeting or whatever they had at the end of December, they seem to be continuing on the, the policy approach of preparing for the potential for sanctions and you know, kind of indigenizing more of the Chinese economy, which again is suggests preparation for some reason why those sanctions would be imposed. And then there's a political conditioning of the 
Chinese population, as far as I can tell, for quote unquote extreme circumstances or rocky waters. Now, you know, I, I routinely people can explain away, you know, every every single one of these in one way or another. But when you put a few of them together, and then more or more importantly, when you put them all together, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and swims like a duck, maybe it's a duck, right? I mean, I think it's almost indisputable that they are preparing for for conflict. Whether or not they will pull the trigger is another question because that is a cosmic role of the dice, as Harold Brown once put it. However, I think that there are very significant reasons why China might contemplate that relatively sooner rather than later. Of course, the big issue and what came out in some Bloomberg reporting is whether the PLA thinks it's ready. Obviously, that's a significant factor because to me, the biggest factor, rationally speaking, for Beijing is going to be whether or not it is able to succeed. And it's important to underline here that for instance, I think some of your colleagues or former colleagues wrote in Bloomberg an interesting analysis of the costs of war for China if there's a war over Taiwan. The huge assumption that they pointed out is that countries would go along with crippling sanctions against the PRC, which I think is not an assumption that can be baked in at all. If, if China succeeds in such a conflict, relatively speaking, it could pay enormous dividends. And I don't think other countries in the world are going to go along with essentially suicidal sanctions against China for a futile purpose when, they, when the war over Taiwan is lost. So why might there be reasons to move in the relatively near future? Well, I think that uh, the military balance, it appears the most sophisticated military analysis I see suggests that China's relatively military advantage in the Western Pacific is likely to peak over the course of this coming decade at some point, or this, you know, the 2020s. There's Xi Jinping's own personal incentive structure, which is, you know, he's not a young man, and this, that's, a, that's a young man's thing. And of course, he has personally tied the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation to the resolution of the Taiwan issue. And then there is a, a, a growing sense of containment. And I mean, this is where I think, and we can talk more about the Biden administration's policy, a lot of it I agree with on Asia. But some of these things are actually, that appear to be steps forward, could be quite dangerous. For instance, the trilateral meeting between among Japan, South Korea, and the United States it's good on one level, but it obviously reinforces China's perception of being strangled and contained, fairly or not. But if you're being, and you go back to the 1941 analogy, if, if a country believes it's being contained or strangled, it has less disincentive to lash out. So for these reasons, I'm very worried. Obviously, right now at the end of 2023 and in the beginning of 2024, there's been a major effort by both the Biden administration and the Chinese government to downplay the risks of war, obviously for somewhat different reasons. The Biden administration is openly talking about how it is too stretched and distracted, essentially. I mean, check out Politico, Philippe Kine and others reporting about Obviously, the Europe war in the situation there is not going well and it's consuming now the Middle East and the re-election campaign. This is from senior administration officials. So they want to downplay the potential for conflict to, to, to make things kind of try to balance out. And I think China has its own reasons, presumably having to do with uh, economic headwinds and trying to appeal to investors and market actors around the world. But of course, you know, look, I, I, someone like me, I think you have to be careful not to read everything as being consistent with one's hypothesis. But Bear in mind that if China is going to launch an attack, my view is that the, the, the most rational form of an attack is an invasion because that's the only way you're really going to solve the problem, decisive victory. If you're going to take Vienna, take Vienna. You need as much surprise as possible. You need to, you need to diminish our warning as much as possible. So you have an incentive to deception. And so from China's perspective, I don't take very seriously the idea that, that you have teams of retired PLA officers saying, oh, you know, the PLA is not ready yet, blah, blah, blah. I just don't take that very seriously. Moreover, it's not up to the PLA. It's going to be up to Xi Jinping 
whether he thinks the overall constellation of factors is such that maybe it's not 100, it's never going to be 100% certainty, but maybe it's at 72% certainty and it's going to decline going forward. The last point I would make, and I mean, conscious of my partisan bias, you know, discount accordingly, but I don't think the Biden foreign policy being as consumed in Europe and the Middle East as it is, is in a position to project strength in the Pacific. Do I think China's gonna do it in 2024? I, I really don't know, but I do think we are in the window. If I had to bet, I would say it's more probable later in the decade based on the PLA's own readiness levels, but I think we are in the window. Thank you, Bridge. There's a lot I want to follow up on, but let me pick up first on what you think the potential for risk is this year, both after the Taiwan elections and before the U.S. presidential elections. And then after, of course, our presidential elections. As you look at 2024, I know you mentioned you don't think the PLA is prepared for an invasion or, or other large-scale contingencies. But are you concerned about potential accidents or incidents between the United States and China? Well, I tend not to be worried about crises that aren't connected to a sense in which the Chinese might actually go. So, and I am, I'm not as sanguine as you're suggesting about how things stand in 2024. I'm, I, clearly the PLA, or clearly, I don't know, my sense is the PLA, based on the, what I can tell on the outside, does not feel as confident as it would like to. But I don't think that's a reason that we can discount the possibility entirely in 2024. For a number of reasons, one I, think I mentioned a number of factors, but also the Taiwanese are manifestly not ready, and we're not ready. And you look at the assessment of people like Dave Achmanek at the Rand Corporation. So it's all relative. Readiness is is, is a totally relative construct related to how the adver your adversary is going to fare, what your objectives are, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm willing to say is I th I think it's hard to imagine us getting out of this decade without either a conflict deliberate conflict. I'm not worried particularly about accidental conflict or uh, a militarily significant crisis that emerges from a Chinese perception that it has the military advantage or sufficient military advantage to try and to, you know, essentially like an ultimatum or something like that. So to me, win without fighting is not like some voodoo gray zone type stuff. Win without fighting is like a gun to Taiwan's head and they know how this is going to go and they act accordingly and capitulate. Got it. And just to make sure, if we're just focusing on the defense and security side, is your main concern that we might have either a military crisis or a significant military conflict with China, mainly just around Taiwan? Or are you also concerned about developments in the South China Sea and elsewhere? Well, to me, Taiwan is like the focal point. Like Taiwan is, is the, for multiple reasons, obviously, the political connection that, that China has to Taiwan or claims but also the proximity, it's developed its military for that reason. So it's more of like a focal point, but a Taiwan issue is not, the reason why we care so much about Taiwan is that Taiwan issue is not narrowly about Taiwan, it's about the overall military and geopolitical balance, so it's connected. So a, a conflict that at this point, and I mean, I, I routinely use the point that kind of, I think something that came out from one of your surveys a couple of years ago, Bonnie, that every American expert you surveyed believe that China assumed the United States would come to Taiwan's defense. So if that's the case, then China would be foolish if it wanted to try to resolve this militarily to do so in a kind of soda straw way, hoping that the United States would not get involved. Instead, its incentive is to act with surprise and preemption and so forth, which it's obviously training its military to do. I mean, you've seen now like the mock-ups of the US carrier and the Gobi Desert and all these other things. 
so obviously, and Tom Shugart has, has done a lot of great work on Google Earth and others to, to show what, what the Chinese are preparing for, that would be a larger war. And if the Chinese were victorious, the consequences would also be more significant. For instance, the South China Sea, but also the Philippines, potentially other countries in the region, et cetera. Bridge, let's take a step back. And I want to ask you what you're most worried about with respect to China. You mentioned most of your worries were on the defense and security side. But as you look at the political and economic side, are there key actions or key activities that China is taking that, from your perspective, really rise to the same level of concern as the defense issues that you've already highlighted? No. No. Because the stakes are economic in nature. So what, what is at issue here? And if you look at what the Chinese are saying and so forth, I think this is consistent with basically what they're expressing. The stakes are who basically controls, quote unquote, controls or, or has a dominant influence in the global economy and particularly the economy of Asia, which is going to be the major market area in the future. So that's the stakes. That's what's it. But I think what we've seen is that, and I say this with, with respect for his abilities and service and so forth, but I think that Jake Sullivan was wrong. So Jake Sullivan, in a few years ago, in a foreign policy article, responded to some testimony that I had given to the U.S.-China Commission saying, what matters is the military balance and regional hegemony in Asia. If we get that right, everything else falls, falls into more or less was manageable. Uh, if we get that wrong, we're toast. Sullivan argued, no, yes, we got to worry somewhat about the military balance, but there's, China has multiple roads to global preeminence, basically, or global hegemony, is with you, you know, including soft power, economic sanctions, yada, yada, yada. I think that's been demonstrated to be incorrect. Why? Because China's, for instance, on soft power, China's more unpopular than ever, right? Because as you practice wolf forward diplomacy and tried to force countries to toe the line, there's a natural balancing reaction. Economic sanctions, I think, have proved very ineffective. I mean, China itself, there's no better example than Taiwan, where its economic sanctions have fallen flat, but of course, Australia. And also for us, our economic sanctions have fallen completely flat, like in the Russia context. I mean, it's amazing how poorly our sanctions and performed. And that's not because like they were poorly designed. It's the nature of the problem. I can go into that more. So that in some sense is good news. But what it means is that the military balance is really the decisive factor because the thing that can get countries to do something that they really don't want to do, like to, I'm not worried about the gray zone or disinformation, quote unquote, or sanctions on Taiwan, getting Taiwan to give up its independence. I just, I don't think that's a big problem. I think that will kind of solve itself. What I am worried is that the Chinese invade, put a gun in, in, in well, kill probably a lot of people on Taiwan, including the leadership, and put guns in everybody else's face, and then they capitulate. That's a way to get people to capitulate. And so the military balance is what really matters. I'm not that worried. And therefore, but also this gets into part of my big criticism of the Biden administration's Asia policy is a lot of their policy is designed more to address the soft power and economic stuff that China potentially threatens, like their emphasis in Europe, right? To, to build coalitions vis-a-vis -vis China, which is not about the military balance because there's nothing the Europeans can do militarily. It's about economic sanctions, which I think won't matter and are unlikely to materialize as Macron indicated, I think last year. Similarly, a lot of the, a lot of like the thing, the trilateral thing I mentioned with Japan and South Korea or even AUKUS, or the Quad, they're largely optical, kind of diplomatic, political things, which if basically the way I put it is, if there's no war or militarily significant crisis in this kind of one without fighting model that I'm talking about, if that never happens, I think their policy will probably be fine on Asia. If there is a war or a militarily significant crisis, and essentially where the Chinese attempt to use their military advantage, then I think it's all 
not only insufficient, but possibly counterproductive. Thank you, Bridge. You mentioned the Biden administration's Asia policy. You also mentioned Jake Sullivan. And it seems like your main criticism of where the United States is heading vis-a-vis China is that we haven't focused enough on defense. And there's been too much focus on the non-defense related activities. But wouldn't you agree that efforts like the U.S., Japan, Korea, Trilat, AUKUS, and the Quad build up more consensus among our allies and partners over time? And that might help us to get them to do significantly more on defense, particularly as we look at the next five or 10 years. Yeah. Well, right. That's the problem. So, so it's, it's an opportunity cost issue. None of these things in a vacuum is bad. They're all good, right? The question is, the two points are opportunity costs and how they're received by China and how it affects its own calculations about whether to move militarily and, and when. Right. And the problem is, okay, opportunity cost issue is like, well, if you're spending a lot of time organizing a meeting at Camp David that basically has very little concrete military component, doesn't really result in any material change in the military situation. Are you employing what is by definition scarce political capital as efficiently as possible? So for instance, like the Japanese, it's great that the Japanese are pledging to get sort of depending on how you measure it near 2%. But by 2027, which is the year that the Biden administration itself is saying Xi Jinping has instructed the PLA to be ready. And despite Xi Jinping apparently saying that he's not going to declare war on tw- in 2027, the Biden administration has not moved off that assessment. And then patting everybody on the back and saying that everything's going great. Similarly, AUKUS is a perfect example. AUKUS in a lot of ways is great. Australia is, I think, our closest ally along with uh, the United Kingdom. But those, wait, th- this is going to involve us potentially giving up our most prized and valuable conventional military asset during the window when China possibly has its greatest military opportunity to an ally, like we're going to give them away. That doesn't make any sense. And I've been saying this yesterday. This is like we're heading towards an iceberg on this issue because from a military point of view, that doesn't make sense. And the value is in this kind of long term political like and maybe we'll have better military situation in the 2040s. I mean, we'll be lucky to get to the 2040s or the quad. What does the quad actually do? I'm not really sure. Not a bad thing, but not really. It's unclear of its value. Secondly, all these things happening have clearly contributed to convincing the Chinese that they are being contained. Now, there's a, and this is why you mentioned, I think you're the last podcast guest were Jessica Chen Weiss, Bonnie Glazer, and Tom Christensen. And I disagree with all of them about a number of things, but I, an area where I overlap significantly is that like we do need to have a reassurance, a reassurance element or as Tom Schelling would put it, you know, a graceful exit issue here where we do want to be conscious that we are not a, Overly, we may not be able to convince them otherwise, but we can at least try to diminish the perception on the part of Beijing that it is being, over time, its future economic growth is being suppressed or contained. Whether or not that's reasonable is sort of immaterial, but it, whether we can do that, that's, that's in our interest. And secondly, that the Taiwan issue over some period could be resolved to Beijing's satisfaction without recourse to military force. And so for me, I say, I'm openly say I'm against Taiwan independence. Like this should be, we should preserve our interests in preserving the status quo. So my bottom line problem with the Biden administration policy is it's, I would say, speak moderately, but carry a small stick. There are great things happening. There's stuff in the Pentagon that Eli Ratner and Sam Paparo and Charlie Flynn and Wilsbach and, and the Marines, et cetera, are doing that deserve a lot of applause and credit with the Philippines and posture, et cetera. I'm not, that, that is fantastic stuff and deserves support and applause. The problem is that it's way below what we need. 
in terms of, of pace and scale, which is not the fault of those elements of the Pentagon trying to do that. It's a fault of our macro policy on both the administration and many Republican side, an unwillingness to, to, to prioritize. But in that context, the worst policy is to speak loudly and carry a small stick. My view is we should speak softly and carry a big stick. Now, in fairness to the administration, I do think they are conscious of not, I mean, that's one of the reasons they've been sending all these emissaries over to Beijing, which I think is problematic if you're looking at it kind of from my point of view in the overall picture. But like, at least they're not poking the dragon as much as necessary. But our political system as a whole, and this is one of the areas where I disagree with some of my friends on the more hawkish side of the China issue, is the last thing we want to do from a position of weakness is deepen the adversarial element in a period of time or like increase their perception that we are trying to contain their future economic growth when we're, when we're weak. I mean, we ran this experiment with Japan in 1941 and it did not go well. Cooper, just to make sure, I think what you're saying is if you were to design an overall U.S. policy towards China, you would focus a lot more on, as you said, uh, having a big stick, right? right. Uh, invest a lot more on the defense side. Right. And it seems also you're saying that we should do actually less on the economic side as well as maybe on the political side to not create what you mentioned, uh, the perception that we're trying to suppress China's economic growth. Is that a correct characterization? Yes. Just to clarify that a little bit. On the military side, it's really a denial defense. It's not like trying to achieve some kind of dominance over China. It's really to hold the line at the first island chain from a denial point of view, which is the official Defense Department position at this point. So we should just do it and we should really hyper-focus our allies instead of giving Patriot missiles to Ukraine indirectly, like in the case of Japan, they should be ready for a denial defense themselves. And we should be ready to together to fight the Chinese in case they decide to move with the idea of deterring them. And then I would turn down the temperature from a strategic point of view. And this is solely from, and I want to clarify this, from a strategic point of view, I would take my foot off the accelerator on the economic sanctions issues. Why? Because I don't think they're going to work. Like, I don't think economic decoupling is going to coerce China in some way to behave differently. And it might make the situation worse. Over time, I think it's a, a, a laudable goal to try to decouple. And like some of my friends of mine on the right, like Orrin Cass, have been arguing for decoupling. But what we can't do is we can't do hardcore decoupling and or, or like economic sanctions in a sense and military weakness. Because that in that incentive, it's actually rational for China to try to use military force to array Asia around itself economically. So we can, we can do the economic decoupling, but we have to be conscious that we need to have a military shield that ensures that China doesn't have an incentive to lash out. And uh, with respect to reassuring China on Taiwan, you mentioned that you would support very clear public statements from US leaders saying that we oppose Taiwan independence, but paired with significantly building up our military capabilities to defend Taiwan. Is there anything else you would change on the macro level with respect to our Taiwan policy? Well, I think that's it. And I, I, I think, I mean, my impression of the Chinese and where people like Jessica and her co-authors are, you know, I think have a point is that the Chinese are not stupid. They see what the administration says in its formal statements, but they're also looking at the broader American political climate, which has obviously moved a lot on the Taiwan issue over the last couple of decades, certainly in the last few years. And I, of course, understand where that's coming from. There's sympathy for democracy on Taiwan and a pro-American society or government, et cetera. But I would just be more clear and more, in, in a sense, kind of, I would try to be more as credible as possible that we are not seeking to, I mean, we want China to have 
again, that graceful exit from this, this, this calculus about whether to use force in this period. We want China to be able to say, look, the Americans are basically credibly indicating that they are not moving this towards independence or a fundamental break. What that future condominium or whatever might look like is, as Deng Xiaoping used to say, for future generations to resolve. I think it was Deng Xiaoping. But something like that. And of course, how you communicate that credibly, you're never going to be able to convince them wholly, but I would want to shift the messaging in that direction, consistent with not only arming ourselves, but also arming the Taiwanese and the Japanese. You mentioned Eli Ratner, and some have misinterpreted Eli's comments on Taiwan as setting a U.S. policy intending to keep Taiwan permanently separate from China. I don't think that's what he intended. But when you talk about giving China a graceful exit on Taiwan, what exactly do you mean? Are you largely on the same page as Eli, or would you be more open to the idea of China achieving unification peacefully? Well, I mean, I, I'm not familiar with everything that Eli has said, but I have seen nothing that he has said that remotely indicates to me that he's talking about a permanent separation. I think what he's been talking about, as far as I can tell, and this is certainly my view also, is that the United States is going to is going to resource and posture itself in such a way as to make that a reality, right? Which is like obviously things. I mean, this is on, on a, you know, I'm not just going to like concede the Chinese point. The Chinese situation has changed fundamentally, and the Chinese capabilities are in a far, far different place than they were 30 years ago, right? And so the way the, the way that I would push it back to to PRC people or representatives or whatever is to say, look. They're basically trying to normalize this discussion as if it's solely about Taiwan. But China has gone past the point where it's like a narrow territorial issue in like a local context. China is now so strong. It's one of the two superpowers in the world, basically. It's the largest industrial power in the world. It's in an unprecedented, huge military buildup that anything it does over Taiwan is going to inherently reverberate. So it's not like the United States just woke up one day and was like, oh, you know, we're going to make the Taiwan issue more complicated. Like nobody wanted that to happen. But the problem is, is that if China now takes Taiwan, that has a lot of ramifications well beyond the strict issue of, of irredentist nationalism and you know, the end of the civil war, quote unquote. So I think what, what, what's incumbent upon Chinese in, in responding seriously to what people like Eli are saying is to say, look, here's a vision about how China and Taiwan could some, come to some kind of condominium or whatever. Doesn't mean we need to accept it or, or the Taiwanese need to accept it, but at least that would be a serious proposal that also addresses the geopolitical concerns and the balance of power concerns from the United States, Japan, ASEAN, India, Europe, Australia, et cetera, right? And I don't see any of that. I see a lot of like, this is a this is an issue of Chinese nationalism. And sometimes like, we're just a little old country. And it's like, no, 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 <laughs> that's not, things take on a different complexion when you're a super, you know, like when you achieve the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Thank you. Embridge, you served in DOD during the Trump administration, and I had the opportunity to work briefly with you then when I was on the China desk. I wanted to get your sense of what you see as a landscape on the Republican side with respect to China. I recognize that there's not just one Republican view on China, but what do you see as the major divisions, if any? I would say there's a, a significant degree of consensus on the Republican side of the aisle about China being a, a very, very, very significant threat. So if you look, I mean, the way that I liked and the European Council on Foreign Relations did a nice 
matrix using this model. I think the right way to think about divides on the Republican side on foreign policy is ranging from what you could call the primacists, which is to say basically, you know, heavily reflected in, say, senior members of Congress, particularly in the Senate, which is to say, you know, people who want the United States to be kind of the world, world policeman, or for lack of a better term, but, you know, basically, as Robert Kagan puts it, global liberal hegemon, you know, whether or not it's sort of liberalism is different, but, you know, basically the United States should be the superpower, the unipolar power. And so China falls into that, but those people, China falls into that category as well, but they don't say, they say, well, China's a global threat, but also that we need to be super active in the Middle East and Europe, et cetera. On the other extreme of the party is, or extreme, the other side of the party, I guess you could say, is what you could call restrainers. I mean, some people call them isolationists, but I think that's a bit, you know, often used as a kind of canard or tendentious charge. But these are basically people who say the United States is way too engaged in the world. It's unnecessary. We could do a lot better and we spare ourselves a lot of headaches and pain if we withdrew from the world. But even this group sees China, almost generally speaking, with a few exceptions, but generally speaking, sees China as a major challenge. The issue, though, is more that they see it in an economic light. They don't want to necessarily get in a fight over Taiwan, but they, they'll want to decouple. I mean, for instance, you know, I mentioned Oren. I'm, I'm not sure what his foreign policy views are, but basically it's like a total decoupling, and that you'll hear frequently. But it's not like this is a pro-China group. And then in, the, kind of in between these groups is what I call, and certainly I'm a part of, is the prioritizer view, which is you know, you've kind of more realistic, realist view, which is you focus on the biggest challenge, which is China and the military balance and so forth. I think that, so the biggest debates within the Republican Party on foreign policy and on China are really in effect how much to actually focus on China, right? So in effect, the problem is that like, even though there's a lot of rhetorical opposition to China, in practice, a lot of the primacists are still like, okay, we need to defeat Russia. We need to maximally support Ukraine. Maybe we need to bomb the Iranian nuclear program, you know, attack the Houthis, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and also China, which of course, just from my point of view, just doesn't add up as like a math problem, like a, from a business perspective, it's just not a tenable strategy. So that's my debate with them. And then on the other side, with the, with the restrainers, my argument is like, yes, China's an economic challenge and all that, but if we just pull back and are not willing to fight for anything, that's gonna give China a huge green light and it's in their interest to use military force or coercion to establish like a secure geoeconomic sphere and then use that to make us poorer at home. So that doesn't work out either. So that's the debate over there. So I think it's more, the debates on the Republican side are much less about whether China, I think, which is different from my impression on the, than on the Democratic side. I think on the Republican side, there's general, like nobody's gonna say, hey, the PRC is great or not, or the, the PRC is misunderstood. They have that, that, da, you know, like Henry Kissinger or something like that stuff, that doesn't carry any water. Um, I think it's more about how, to, how much to focus whether and to what extent it's a military problem, these kinds of issues. Bridge, you mentioned the primacists include senior members of Congress. Mm -hmm. For the restrainers, what positions do they occupy within the Republican Party? Well, I think that, that, that the, the momentum among Republican or conservative voters is in that direction. So I think the general view among a lot of Republican voters, and you can see this is analogous to like free trade, is that a lot of the, 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 the policy planks of the sort of early 21st century Republican Party are, have been rejected, increasingly rejected by a, a, a growing portion 
of the party, especially the younger generation. I mean, I was struck, a friend of mine named Johnny Burtka, who runs the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, so famous old, I think Bill Buckley founded a conservative uh, educational institution and various other things. He, he gave a quote, and we were both in the story, but he, where he pointed out that he didn't know almost anybody under 30 who didn't regard like old school neoconservatism almost like with scorn, like, like as a joke, right? Which is, you know, it goes back to my, um, I always remember Kissinger, I think he wrote in A World Restored, his first book, that, that I don't, ideas don't get like logically disproved in politics and so forth. They get sort of, they're just no longer legitimate. And I mean, I'm not, I don't want to overstate. I mean, obviously there's a lot of different views and so forth. But if you look at the newer members coming into Congress, if you look at the House, it's much more in that direction. I mean, if you look at, you know, I don't want to characterize position, but if you look at Speaker Johnson, he's much closer to where I think it's reasonable to say the beating heart of a Republican coalition, which itself is changing. I mean, we see different, you know, socioeconomic groups, et cetera. But I think that's, uh, that. so the political momentum, the grassroots momentum, but of course, grassroots is one thing, but actual power is another thing. So the way I kind of think about it is, is that the, the primacist group it was a very ascendant 20 years ago. A lot of members of the Senate, it's a seniority uh, situation, or the, or the House, were elected 20, 30, even 40 years ago. They re- reflect those views. You know, often, like, there's a difference in the sort of fundraising picture and so forth for the, for the different groups. But I think, I think that's the way. But one of the reasons that I think that the prioritizers are well-situated is not because there's a ton of us. They're actually... They're actually aren't that many of us at this point, but it offers an, uh, a, a natural compromise between these two. I mean, I didn't, it's not my view because it's, but it's partially informed by the political reality. I mean, one of the problems to get to your kind of the, the underlying theme of your question, I think, Bonnie, is, you know, and I think we've seen this very vividly with the Ukraine situation. I mean, I think the prime, one of the things that really makes me sort of just like, I, I, I don't understand about the primacist political theory is that it, if for it to, that to work, at minimum, it would require very dramatic increases in defense spending and like really an overhaul and much greater support in the country for direct military intervention or at least very substantially kind of close to it. And I just don't see that materializing. I think you've seen this with the Ukraine in, in a somewhat of a microcosm. I mean, not that the, it's a tragic conflict, obviously, but, but just one example where you know, I mean, we'll see what happens with the supplemental, but I think the clear direction of travel, certainly among Republicans, but I also think among independents, probably the Democrats too, is increasing skepticism. And, you know, right now the House is negotiating on, I think the Senate, on spending levels. There's no discussion at all of significant increases in defense spend, really significant that would make a material difference, let alone doubling of defense spending. So I just, I just don't see the political support for the globe-spanning liberal hegemony of Robert Kagan and Bill Kristol of 1999. And I think that the problem for the China issue, where this becomes like if Republicans got into power, the issue would be, yeah, they all say China's a problem, but like how much is it a problem and how much are you willing to, to make those tough choices on other things to have a credible policy? In terms of tough choices, when you were in the Pentagon, you played a pivotal role drafting the 2018 National Defense Strategy. And in that document, you described long-term strategic competition with China and Russia as a central challenge to the United States. Obviously, a lot has happened since then. And based on what you were mentioning earlier, it seems to me that you still see Russia as problematic, but you believe we should very much concentrate on China. The question I have for you then is, 
how do we deal with increasing China-Russia ties? Something that, of course, DC is quite focused on. Is focusing on China sufficient and focusing less on Russia okay? If we see the two countries potentially increasing ties not only with each other, but with other countries that have problematic relations with the United States. Yeah, I mean, I like what choice do we? I, I almost I like just can't understand that argument because it's sort of well, obviously, if you concede that the biggest threat and the most consequential theater is China and the military threat is real, then. You, you know, I mean, the analogy I use is like maybe the Ukraine war. And I, again, I don't want to make light of it is like a broken bone. Like you need to go to the emergency room, you're going to need surgery. But like China's a case of acute heart disease. If you, you know, it, it hasn't happened yet, but if it does, it could kill you. So, I mean, obviously you should make sure you take care of your acute heart disease. Like you want to address the, you know, your broken bone when you can, but like pick your analogy. But, and the fact that China and Russia are collaborating actually means they're more likely, especially given that China's clearly the senior partner, means that they're more likely to act collaboratively and strategically together to distract the United States, which is obviously what's happening right now. I mean, so my, one of my, I mean, a fundamental critique of the Biden administration is our the foreign policy has been a complete disaster in the sense that we're now stretched and depleted in two theaters without even being an, a vision for a decisive or, or, or really a positive outcome. I mean, the, the Biden administration itself is apparently pressing Zelensky at Davos, like for any kind of a real strategy. So, you know, things are not Things are not going well. The defense industrial base has not been fixed, et cetera. So, I mean, people of businesses deal with this. Great Britain dealt with this in the turn of the century. Like, you take care of the biggest problem. And so this is, again, with the primacists where I get, and, and I mean, for the Jake Sullivans of the world, my sense is that they maybe genuinely don't, they d genuinely don't think the military balance is so dangerous and that maybe the Chinese don't actually want war and that other measures will dissuade China. I think that's wrong. But at least you could defend that as being consistent with his overall approach. What I don't understand is the hawk position, the, the, the sort of primacist position, which is China's incredibly dangerous. In fact, they, they think it's more dangerous than I do because while I hate communism, I'm not interested in regime change. I don't think Xi Jinping, like he's not a good person, whatever, but he's not like the second coming of Hitler. But you have Amer American members of Congress calling him Hitler or something close to it. And then these same people are basically acting as if the military threat is not that serious, I guess, because uh, because we're gonna we're gonna defeat and then this idea that we're gonna quickly defeat Russia by giving them a couple of the Ukrainians a few extra F-16s. And by the way, I'm in favor of giving them F-16s because they wouldn't be relevant in the Pacific. But I mean, that's I think that's at this point that's pretty clearly borderline delusional. So I don't I don't really understand. That. By the way, if you for the 2018 National Defense Strategy, if you want to see my own testimony. Uh, that I gave the Senate Armed Services Committee in 2019 after I'd left, but gives you a clearer sense of the actual prioritization. If you look at the statements of Mattis, particularly Secretary Esper, China was clearly the priority. So it was China first, then Russia. By the way, that was also a different time. The idea there was to help build up a stronger posture on for Eastern NATO, but with the idea that the Europeans would assume more responsibility over time. Instead, we wasted a lot of that time the Europe, well, we, particularly the Europeans didn't do that. And then the Biden administration has taken the pressure off the Europeans to actually, now it's starting to happen because they're in more desperate straits, hopefully. But the idea was not to have like a permanent that Russia was anywhere. No, China is the priority. And by the way, it's now six years water under the bridge. Like time is a huge factor. China is much, much more of a, uh, formidable than it was even six years ago. And, and the threat is far more acute. So China absolutely has to be the priority. Thank you. 
we'll probably need to start wrapping up this podcast. But I did want to ask you, Bridge, if you were to draft a new national security strategy, of course, with a focus on China, as you mentioned, what would you change from what we have now? So I actually think the strategy is pretty much there. I think m- most of the work I think was done in the 2018 NDS, but and I uh, you know, just seen the open or read the open version of the 2022 one. But I think most of the most of the strategy is pretty much there. The strategy is China's the priority, Taiwan's the pacing scenario, denial, defense. That's what I can ascertain is our formal strategy. The question now is the issue now is implementation, and implementation meaning not just like some kind of oh, Indo-Pay company needs to do this. No, but rather an overarching realignment of the efforts of the department in terms of finances, in terms of activities, in terms of capital, in terms of attention, et cetera, to the priority theater. And needing to do it, given that we, I believe that we are now in the window already, again, I'm not saying it's as probable as it might be in the future, but I think we're in the window, that we need to be ready, as people like Berger and others have been saying, we need to be ready now, we need to be ready in a year, we need to be ready in three years, five years, and 10 years. And so we need to do what, what that is. So for me, like if it were up to me, if I were king for a day, I would be like, I'd write like a one-page thing or three-page memo laying out the, you know, these things. It, one, the, the force planning construct that we've been having more or less for the last six years, China's the top priority. And that means not just for force planning down the line in terms of building stuff, but also the activities of the force, the day-to-day stuff, According, uh, 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 accordingly, how we deal with allies, you know, insisting that the Taiwanese and the Japanese really step up, less, much less, uh, uh, you know, active in Europe and, and the Middle East, more of a recess role, and supporting those allies that are that are stepping up, like Israel or Poland or India, et cetera. So that's the I I I just I think the strategy, the overall strategy is pretty pretty much set in a reasonable direction. The, the issue now is actually following through on it. And do you think uh, in terms of the overall construct for force planning that we should be able to fight in one theater and maybe defend or deter a crisis in another theater or be able to fight two conflicts at the same time? How do you sort of envision the allocation of assets globally, again, with the priority on China? Well, yeah. I mean, this debate takes place like almost in like a la-la land divorce from reality, which is the key point that we need to bear in mind is that we don't necessarily have a one war force yet because we're not sure that we can beat China. So like for me, it's like every incremental asset resource should be put against the priority, which is as I go into my book is China denial defense from a conventional force planning, the recapitalization of our nuclear forces and a a cost efficient counterterrorism effort and everything else should fall by the wayside. So simultaneity, like whatever the problem is in Europe, or Middle East, it's going to be manageable if we get things right in the priority theater, which is Asia. Because if, whereas if we get it wrong in Asia, everything's going to be worse, not only indirectly, because the Russians and the Iranians are going to have more power, they're going to have more stuff from the year, they're going to have more momentum, but also because the Chinese themselves will be then increasingly active in Europe and the Middle East. And we already, we don't need to speculate, they're they're looking for basing options in those regions. So the key is, as Winston Churchill said, if you get things right in the decisive theater, you can put everything right again afterwards. And by the way, that's not even mentioning that the American people are showing zero interest in huge increases in defense spending, which would anyway take a lot of time. And our defense industry is like really not in good shape. It costs way too much money to build everything, et cetera. So like, like to me, that's just, like that, that issue should just be settled. And people who are calling for like multiple for, w- w- simultaneous war things, it's just like, Sorry, no, no, no. Like, are we gonna are we gonna be serious about what is obviously 
by far the most consequential thing that, again, according to Rand, we're on track to lose. So what are we, like, who are we thinking talking, what are we thinking talking about simultaneity at this point? I'm not saying you don't have a vision for simultaneity. The, the so primary solution to simultaneity is either empowering, like in the case of Israel and India and Poland, or really putting a lot of pressure, and this is what I've been spending a lot of time over the last five years doing, putting a lot of pressure on capable allies. Like there's an obvious solution here, which is for Germany to reconstitute a half, maybe even a third of the Bundeswehr that existed when it was two thirds of the current Federal Republic, when it was West Germany. Totally feasible. It's just a question of will. And by the way, the Russian military, formidable. I don't think they're a joke personally, but also having trouble, at least in Eastern Ukraine, not gonna march to the English Channel. And just to make sure, you're also saying that if you were to design our next national defense strategy, you don't think it's realistic to significantly increase defense spending. So you'll work with approximately our current defense spending levels, but reallocate more to focus on China. Is that a correct understanding? Well, I mean, look, if as a defense person, I have sort of a view that defense people often go out and call for increased defense spending. And I feel like that just is not very credible. And it's more our responsibility to kind of what the way I look at it is, and I put it in my book, is the three things we absolutely must get right is denial of defense in Asia, nuclear deterrent, and low-cost counterterrorism scenario. And then I would also suggest some ability to contribute to NATO Europe. Whatever that costs, that's like this, the role of the strategist. Whatever that costs, I think, should be borne by the American people. That would be my recommendation. But, but people just kind of going out and saying doubling the defense budget. When we did the NDS in 2018, when we were working on 2017, we did not have a top-line figure in mind. You know, we gave kind of options and like came up with a kind of more prioritized model that did require increases in defense spending. So we're not even meeting the prioritized formal defense strategy right now. So, but I just think, I mean, I, I basically, I think a lot of people, particularly on the Republican side, will go around arguing, well, my, I've made my case because I said double the defense budget and you could, if we doubled the defense budget, we could do everything that I'm saying. I just don't think that's honestly very serious or credible because it's not gonna happen. And so what's the value? Like the way I put it is Governor Haley has, has been, uh, and Vice President Pence were, have advocated for a much more expansive kind of primacist foreign policy agenda. I don't think they could actually pursue it even if they ended up in the White House, and not going to be Vice President Pence, because where's the political support for it? And by the way, it would take a lot of time. And if you read Greg Ipp's column in, in, in uh, December, and if you've been paying attention, this has been evident for a couple of years, our defense industry cannot actually produce at that scale and rapidity. So like, to me, I guess what I'm saying is like, we need to have a strategy that actually we could implement. <laughs> A strategy that actually aligns with our fiscal constraints, right? Yeah, all oh, right. We're not even mentioning the interest rates on the debt. And so again, both can both leading candidates in the pre President Trump and President Biden have both said they're not going to cut Social Security. So like you have these hawk types saying, oh, it's just, just cut Social Security, which like, A, I don't necessarily agree with. I don't know. But like, I don't, I mean, people should have Social Security and healthcare and whatever. But also, ain't, like, it's not going to happen. So, so when a bunch of armed services committee people say something, that's not the point. The point is whether the president, the appropriators, the leadership in the two Congresses, like, that's where it kind of, the majority is at the, at the main, you know. Rich, thank you so much for this really fascinating discussion with so much rich insight. Uh, you mentioned, you know, if you could be king uh, for a day, but at least uh, you, you're, you're king for this podcast for 45 minutes. So thank you so <laughs> All right, much. Well, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you.